Well, good evening. Good to have you here tonight. Welcome, welcome. We are moving on to the next category of basics tonight, and we're talking about the plan of God. And a subject that is deeper than you can imagine. (laughs) A topic that plunges into the depths of things beyond imagination. And yet, one that is very appropriate on a basic level to provide an introduction, to provide a big picture, an overview. Uh, a babe in Christ that was just saved this morning can get a handle on, on these principles. There's no reason why they can't. They have the Holy Spirit indwelling them as the Holy Spirit indwells all of us. And the, uh, the doctrine and the plan of God, uh, I think, is, is critical. Uh, knowing His will, of course, is, is um, fundamental to, to walking in His will, to pleasing Him. The will of God is, uh, is particular and focused as, a, as an element of the overall plan of God. And that's how I like to uh, dif- differentiate the concepts, all right? And we talk about thelema with the will. We talk about bulamai or bule with the uh, plan. And so sometimes the terms are used interchangeably. There's occasions where bule or bulamai can be rendered will or desire. And so I, I prefer to stay consistent with my terminology, keeping the thelema vocabulary connected to the will of God and uh, with bulology as the doctrine of the plan of God. And so I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll plunge right into the study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your truth and thankful for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, I thank you for the church age. I thank you for the stewardship in which we operate in so many ways, Father, uh, the blessings you've poured out upon us are beyond anything Old Testament saints could have ever dreamed of or imagined. And yet here we are, Father, and as a part of your plan, as a central part of your plan in providing a bride for your son, I thank you for these blessings. I ask for your continued blessings as we study to show ourselves approved. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, before we do get started, though, was a question was asked, uh, and I want to demonstrate based on the website. If you want an electronic copy of, of this material, you can, you can do that. Um, and a lot of times, uh, folks go to the Austin Bible Church website, and they click on documents. I rarely do, all right? I rarely do. In fact, I need to talk to, to Bob and Jacob and, and maybe improve the documents tab and make it easier. Um, what I instead, what I, what I find uh, more useful is to click on the audio recordings. And you say, well, I don't want audio recordings. I want the printed material. All right, just patience. Work with me here. Start with the audio recordings. And you may find that, that you'll like them. Um, because in the audio recordings is where we have, I think, the greatest functionality for searching and sorting and categorizing and finding the studies, uh, particularly if you already know where you're looking for it, you just have to, you just have to get there. So uh, all the recordings that are presently going on are, are right there, uh, in, including you know, the most recent two from this morning, Galatians and Jeremiah. And, uh, but over here on the right-hand side under audio recordings is the uh, drop-down menu, and, and there... Um, completed studies will give you so many things that we've done um, through the years and, and so forth. And uh, including, you'll notice, uh, basic doctrinal studies. All right? If you can spot it right there. And so there's basic doctrinal studies. And one of the 
uh, frustrating things that, that folks prefer. They, they want to have printed notes in their hands while I'm teaching, and I never do that, all right? And I realize that's frustrating for folks who want that or are used to that, um, but I prefer to wait until the study is complete, and then I find all my typos, and I find, and I also change some things. We had a rewrite of point one and subpoint F uh, just this week in the Galatians material, um, and so to have that kind of freedom to, to wait until the study is done has always been my practice. Um, but once the study is complete, what happens is the, the notebooks get finished, the other notes get finished, and then they, they show up here. All right, and they're going to be tagged in such a way that at the bottom of every page uh, is going to be the printed notes in a PDF document that has the, the material there. So uh, there are uh, 68 lessons in basic doctrinal studies from when we taught it before, back in 2005 and 2006. And in the process of teaching that, uh, the notebook that was developed is, is right there at the bottom of each of those pages. All right, there's four different pages to go through, and it doesn't matter what page you're looking at. Uh, on any of those pages, at the bottom is going to be uh, the files, the, the supporting documents that go with that study. So this is true for Life of Christ, this is true for 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, anything, virtually anything, I say virtually, if there's something that's a completed study that doesn't have documents with it, let me know, because my intention is to put them there, and, and there's no reason not to put them there once the uh, the study is complete. So the notebook is there. You can left-click it and it'll open in your browser window. You can right-click it and save as and, and, and get your own hard copy or your own uh, local copy of the file. Uh, put it on a tablet, take it wherever. If you want to integrate it with Logos Bible software, uh, then you'll need a docx file for that. And we don't post those on the websites, but uh, they're available. Just ask me and I can email it to you. And you can take the docx file, convert it to a, 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 a Logos Bible software resource. And, uh, and that's what we have there. Also, you'll notice there's subcategories, too, for basics. So if all you want to do is focus in on boolology, the study of God's plan, there you go. And so it, it shows you, okay, those are the five audio files I want to listen to, as well as, obviously, then still the, the printed notes are there. And uh, you can zero in on that particular topic within the, uh, the basic doctrinal studies that we taught. In this case, going back to November and December of 2005. So uh, that's, that's how that works. All right. Doctrine of the plan of God, a study on the Father's plan. And uh, a longer version of the plan of God would be his grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. And uh, John Eichmann and I, Pastor John Eichmann in Seattle, Washington, we like to tweak this title every so often and we add uh, different expressions to it. And, and uh I kind of tease him a little bit because every time he adds a, an expression, I say, well, I can add another expression, and we go back and forth adding expressions. But uh, in any event, this is a grace plan. It is an eternal plan. The Father, Son, and Spirit agreed to it before time commenced, and so it precedes time and it exceeds time at the end. It is the eternal plan. It is a grace plan, and it is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The Father designed everything to magnify the Son. And once it's all accomplished, we have a great omega moment when the Son himself delivers the kingdom back to the Father that God may be all in all. And so although it is the Father's good pleasure to glorify the Son for all eternity, it's also the Son's good pleasure to give credit to the Father for what the Father has designed and what the Father has provided for in this 
capacity, all right? And so it includes a lot of things. It includes the nature and description of the dispensations. And if you're not familiar with what dispensations are, you're going to get a a good idea for that uh, tonight and in upcoming classes. And basically, God has unfolded his plan. He's unfolded his his purpose in a sequence of appointed stewards. A dispensation is an economy or a stewardship. And he has entrusted vested stewards with the responsibility to administer his plan and his program on earth. And uh, the unfolding of this is, uh, is what we're dealing with here tonight. God is the, uh, the Father is the author of the plan. He works all things after the counsel of His will. That's Ephesians 1.11. Some of these are passages that we're familiar with and, and uh, uh, we've taught in, in previous classes. But we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. And the counsel of His will uh, deals with the boule, deals with His plan. Everything he has planned and everything he does is perfect in his eternal wisdom. His eternal purpose is the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. And support for this, I think, is, is important. In John 5, 23, in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, uh, in Colossians 1, verses 18 and 19, and in Ephesians 1, 10, you, you view a, a survey of these texts, and it's clear. The, the, the universe does not revolve around us. <laughs> despite a lot of people's opinion that it does, all right? Uh, when, when you really dig into the text, you find out that it's not me-centric, it's not man-centric, it's not even humanity-centric, it's Jesus Christ-centric. And uh, the exaltation of humanity comes by virtue of Jesus Christ in his hypostatic union, being undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. That's why humanity is exalted above the angels when it comes right down to it. So in John 5, 23, that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. All right? Even the unbelievers, before they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, they will bend the knee. It is not optional at the great white throne judgment. Notice, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Pay attention to that, all right? Because that's a multidimensional definition of everything. And it's useful to understand the multidimensional definition of everything. It's in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Until a point of time is coming when there will no longer be an under the earth. And it's remarkable when the, when the lake of fire is sealed off for all eternity, when the lake of fire is sealed off, from our perspective, then, the multidimensional definition of everything will omit that under-the-earth statement. In Ephesians 1.10, the fullness of time is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And there's no mention in Ephesians 1.10 about under-the-earth like we have here in Philippians chapter 2. And that's extraordinary. That is absolutely vital to pay attention to that because this demonstrates the glories of the Father and the Son beyond the point of time when sin and death and rebellion and all the evil is is locked away forever, sealed away forever. And uh, the under the earth dimension is not even mentioned again uh, in the multidimensional reference to all things. So we'll deal with that as well. So that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because the Father designed this plan, when this is fulfilled, yes, the Son is celebrated, yes, the Son is glorified, but also the Father is glorified because He's the one that put this plan into effect. Colossians 1, verses 18 and 19. 
He is the head of the body, the church. I'm going to back up a little bit as well because the... Um, back up here. It's in Christ that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there's an expression there that, again, takes us into the depths of things. And we're not going to plunge into all those depths tonight. We're keeping this basic. But just understand, there are things to study related to this as the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, notice, and for him. And for him. We better have a Christological perspective uh, because the Father is revolving everything around his Son. And when, we, when we're on board with that plan and program, we're fellow workers with God the Father. When we're not on board with that program, if we're magnifying ourselves or if we're selfishly ignoring Christ or other things, to the extent that we fail to glorify Christ, we are departing from the will of the Father. We are stepping away from our role as God the Father's fellow workers. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's verse 17. That's why I'm not so worked up about the end of the world or global warming or all these other things. And there's Unbelievers are in a tizzy a lot of times trying to save the planet and trying to do all this other stuff. Well, Jesus Christ created it, and Jesus Christ upholds it. He sustains it. He upholds all things by the word of His power, we're told. Uh, everything is in reserve for judgment anyway. When, and when you talk about global warming, how about intergalactic universal warming when all the universe is, is uh, consumed, the elements themselves are consumed with great heat. In any way. Um, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure. Or, um, did I miss verse 18? All right. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Okay? The firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the first resurrection unto glory. Every Old Testament resurrection was technically not even a resurrection, it was a resuscitation to human mortality. And they were restored to their physical life and then subsequently died again. All right, And even in the Gospels, the miracles Jesus performed, Lazarus and, and the widow's son and so forth, they, they were physically resuscitated to physical life, but they died again. See, Jesus was the first resurrection unto glory, or a resurrection unto eternal life. For it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. See, the plan of God centers on Christ, not on us. The fact that we get saved is almost a side effect. I say almost, all right? A side effect. It is, uh, it is the Father remedying what He knew would be the, the inevitable fall in creating volitional beings. And so He creates a, a plan for redemption uh, to remedy the fall, uh, and yet the plan isn't centered in that. The plan is centered in glorifying His Son. And so we can be thankful that uh, saving us is a, is a part of that plan. All right, Ephesians 1.10. Ephesians 1.10, and this takes center stage in the plan of God reader. This takes center stage in a lot of uh, concepts here connected to the plan of God. And it's in the midst of a very long sentence, and so we've got to back up slightly. Uh, but everything that we have in Christ, every spiritual blessing that we have in the heavenly places in Christ is featured right here in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is why we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is verse 3, and that verse right there takes 
months and years and <laughs> study and worship and prayer and 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 I mean there's just so much in there to unfold. But it's everything. It's every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we get that up front. We get that at the moment of our salvation. We get that by virtue of being baptized in a union with Jesus Christ. We are one with Christ. So we are given everything. This is so extraordinary. Remember, he's the heir of all things, and we're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. So um, to have this up front, realizing that we're not, we're not a bunch of do-girders trying to, trying to earn favor. We're not trying, it's not legalism. It's not trying to earn these things. We're giving them up front. We want to walk accordingly in reflection of that, in, in appreciation of that. All right, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now you'll note, how much of this do we include in basics? <laughs> do we include predestination and foreknowledge and election and all these things? We don't include those in basics. We reserve those for more intermediate studies, for more advanced studies. But look where we're headed with this. Um, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. And I agree with the capitalization on that. That is Jesus Christ. He is the Beloved One, the Beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Now here we go. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And so here we start to see the unique position we have in the bride of Christ, in the body of Christ, in the church age. All right? You know, I think about when Jesus told the disciples, he said, I no longer call you slaves, I'll call you friends. And the, the, the privilege of being the, the friend of Christ, the privilege of knowing his will. You know, a slave isn't told all the details of, of why and what and where and when. The slave is just told, do this and obey. And if you don't do this, you know, there's consequences. But a friend, a son, we have the, the privilege in the church age of knowing the will of God, of knowing the plan of God, of being a fellow worker in that plan. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, if, you, if you're in partnership with somebody, right, a business partnership or, or something, and you don't tell your partner what your business plan is, <laughs> okay, I suspect you're going to have some conflict in the, in, in the, the partnership. All right, because you've got this partnership and a business arrangement, but you haven't bothered to tell your partner what your plan is. And so don't be shocked if he's working at cross purposes and doing weird stuff and things that aren't contributing to your business model or aren't contributing to your plan. Well, you failed to tell him what the plan was. That's kind of dumb on your part with your business partner. All right, well, see, God's not a moron. God's not like that. God knows what he's doing. And since he's called us to be his fellow workers to be partakers with him in the glorification of his son, he tells us his plan. And through the Hebrew canon and through the Greek canon, we have the mind of Christ. We have the, the unfolding of what this plan is all about. All right, so here's my expanded title for the plan of God. God the Father's grace, eternal, dispensational plan of the ages for the maximum glorification, pleasure, and blessing of God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. Well, if we lose track of that, then we've lost uh, some, of the, some of the beauty of what the Father is presently doing. See, it's presently underway. It's fulfilling the Father's purpose. 
Um, God the Father is working. He's working all things. That's a present tense verb, you know? Don't think that because he rested on the seventh day that he hasn't done anything since then. The Father's been actively working. He went right back to work on day eight. The Father is working, and, and more so now in the bride of Christ than ever before. Because Jesus was victorious in his first advent, the Father says, have a seat. And the Father has work that he is presently engaged in. We should uh, appreciate that as well. We are his fellow workers, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And the metaphors here are both agricultural and construction related to uh, what we do as God's fellow workers. We're building up the body of Christ. We're edifying our brothers and our sisters. And if there's something we do that's edifying, then it's profitable. If it's not edifying, it might be lawful, but it's not profitable. See, we're told all is lawful, but not all is profitable. All is lawful, but not everything edifies. And that's the definition. If it's, if it's edifying, it's profitable. And that's what we should be here for. We should be here to be building one another up and not cheating, not cutting corners, not uh, skimping on the building materials, say. If we're pouring into them our best, represented by gold, silver, and precious stones, if we're pouring all of our worthiness into them, we do so not because they earn it or they deserve it, but because Christ deserves it. It's our good pleasure to bless Christ as we edify one another. And if we're going to cheat on the materials, the fire will show it. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, the fire will hit it and all of our work will be evaluated on that basis. So there's your, there's your two-minute version of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are God's fellow workers. We must therefore be adjusted to the Father's plan. Proverbs 19.21 Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. You know, quit trying to make up our own plan. Let's get on board his plan. His is the one that's been in in effect since Alpha, and it's not changed yet. It's not going to change. It's going to accomplish everything it's designed for up until Omega. Get on board his plan, see. And I love that. I I love quoting the, the, um, you ever see the old uh, uh, Hunt for Red October? With, uh, yeah, great movie, right? And, uh, Anyway, I, besides the fact that Baldwin was in it. But, you know, Sean Connery did a great job and other, other actors did a great job. But you remember that moment because Jack Ryan is, uh, and, and actually Baldwin was okay in that role. I'll give him that. But Jack Ryan spent all this time trying to figure out a plan, trying to figure out how to get all the people off the submarine so he could steal the submarine, right? And, and, and then, but then it dawned on him. He's, he's in the shower and it finally just hits him like a ton of bricks. He says, wait a minute. Ramius already has this planned out. He says he already he has a plan already. He has to have a plan already. And it was such a big relief to him. The pressure was off because he realized, I don't have to come up with a plan. I just have to figure out what his plan is and, and get on board. See? And, and, and that right there. I don't know if, if Tom Clancy realized it or, the, or the, uh, the movie producers realized it, but they were illustrating the Christian way of life. They were illustrating bullology. We don't have to create the plan. God the Father has already done that. Jesus Christ has already executed much of it. We just have to get on board with our role as the bride of Christ to, to continue the unfolding of that plan in our, in our day and age. That's what it's about. God's purpose is for all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Notice He has a purpose. And again, we have another text that goes into realms of predestination and foreknowledge and all these things uh, in more advanced levels than we're going to get into tonight. 
All right, God has unfolded his plan and through a variety of vested stewards. And even before humanity, there was angelity and the angels had a stewardship and they, they rebelled. Satan and a third of the angels rebelled and that stewardship ended in failure. Then uh, with Adam, we have a human stewardship and the Gentile stewardship that unfolded from Adam to, to Abraham, they had responsibilities and they failed. All right, we have the flood, we have Tower of Babel, we have every one of these stewardships ends in failure, ends in judgment. Even the millennium is going to end in a failure, all right? But the fullness of time will not. The new heavens and new earth will end victoriously. It'll be the first ever stewardship that ends in victory and in glory. And so Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father and we, we cross into eternity future after that. So this progressive unfolding began with the angels, progressed to the creation of man in Adam and the race and nation of Israel. And presently, the unfolding plan of God is revealed through the church. And so understanding the basic outline of this dispensational progression is an important uh, part of boolology. And, and really, every believer ought to have a framework for this. And even the covenant guys who totally reject dispensational theology, they would still agree to what I'm talking about right here. They would still agree that things were different back in, in Abraham's day and things were different back in Noah's day and things were different. Uh, and, and they'll admit to the differences even while they deny um, particular concepts connected to stewardship and dispensationalism. All right, But uh, in any event, I, I have fun with the covenant people I meet from time to time because um, I, I quote Schaefer and other authors and say, you know, if you're trusting in the blood of Christ instead of the blood of a goat, you're a dispensationalist. And you may, you may not know it, you may not realize it, but you are. And so uh, I can appreciate that too. Kind of like the fun I have with atheists. I tell atheists, I, I tell them right to their face, I say, I don't believe in atheists. <laughs> and, and so, you know, they usually get offended or they, they get taken aback and, no, I don't believe in atheists. You know, even though I'm looking right at one. See, well, they don't believe in God, even though they're looking right at him all day, every day. He's, he's right here in his, in his testimony. Anyway, I'm on a rabbit trail. Let me get off of that. So I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe in, uh, uh, I think the covenant people are also dispensationalists if you can sit down with them and talk things through. All right, so we have an unfolding plan. And in this unfolding plan, we have progressive revelation. We have unfolding scriptures. We have additional items. And it's, it's important to get this. Two important foundational principles need to be established at this point. All right. First of all, do we have any questions? I've covered a lot already. Um, we have a microphone ready. Any uh, questions? We can. Okay, let's get a microphone across the aisle over here. I want to make sure that we don't advance so far and so fast that we're not stopping and, and slowing down and, and making sure we're clear on things. Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to kind of back up to something you said about. Uh, like scripture says we have the mind of Christ is uh-huh. that basically what you're describing here like his mind towards humanity unfolded in this plan uh, because you hear it in, in more charismatic <clears throat> charismatic circles uh-huh. the mind of Christ is like a spiritual gift like you're supposed to be able to think the way Christ thought and it's it's more about your personal effort to access this gift that you've been given but is it does it have more to do with just the the plan of salvation and our role in redemption and yes. evangelism and all of that thing? Absolutely. it's not like a supernatural thing it's just christ's mm-hmm. will revealed basically that you're that's exactly right okay that's all exactly right. right i've always wondered about that so uh-huh. all right thank you oh you're welcome oh, thank you. and it is such a privilege because it's ours in the church age and it's ours with a, a new testament and the unfolding of the old testament and the beauty that we have that permanent dwelling of the holy spirit Tremendous blessings. All right. 
Um, all right, two foundational principles. We've already established that God is outside of space and time. He created the realm of space. He created the realm of time. Um, and so we are the, are the temporal beings. We're the ones that, that proceed linearly in a forward temporal aspect. So as angelic and human beings apprehend God's unfolding plan, we come to identify it as unfolding from our viewpoint in time. From God's viewpoint, of course, it's an eternal plan. And God's not springing things on himself. He has had this as an eternal plan beyond space and time. Uh, Ephesians 3.11, the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we want to understand that as well. Secondly, it must be understood that the unfolding plan withheld certain information. Oh, don't do that. Certain information was withheld. It's called mystery doctrine, all right? And mystery doctrine means that God deliberately chose to not reveal certain things until such time as it was ready to be unveiled. And, and mystery doctrine, truthfully, is... is, uh, is it's not like an Agatha Christie novel. It's not like you're trying to puzzle through a whodunit or you're not trying to solve a, a, a question. The, the way the New Testament uses musterion and the doctrine connected to mystery means that God withheld its revelation until such time as it was manifest. And that's what the church is. The church is a mystery. And uh, until such time as it was revealed to the apostles and prophets, angels didn't have a clue, uh, Jews didn't have a clue, Gentiles didn't have a clue, nobody did. All right. Only with hindsight can we look back and find some clues or find some uh, some uh, glimmers, little hints here and there. All right. But the church itself is is a mystery. The dispensation of the church most is most especially this sort of mystery doctrine, and that's why whenever we have these things referred to as mystery, you got Ephesians three, verse three, verse four, verse nine is connected to the church. The rapture is a mystery. And Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, we shall all be changed. And so the Musterian uh, doctrine of the rapture obviously has to be tied to the Musterian doctrine of the church. The, the rapture is a church event. It's not a Jewish event or a Gentile event. It is a church event, as uh, the unfolding of the Musterion makes clear. Along with the progressive revelation, the eternal plan of God entails a particular planned obsolescence. That too goes beyond the scope of what we're going to deal with in basics, but we have passages, for, for example, in Hebrews that says whatever is growing old and obsolete is ready to disappear. All right? Don't be offended by that. I wasn't looking at anybody when I said that. Whoever is growing old, no, whatever is growing old. And the, the reference is to Mosaic law. The reference is, is to the Old Testament Mosaic law that was, got, that, that was given to Israel and their stewardship in, in the Old Testament. But obviously, the fulfillment of the, of the Christological types is fulfilled by Jesus on the cross, and so we're moving past that. And uh, we move past that in the church. The Jews will move past that in the tribulation and in the millennium. All right, And that becomes a, a more of an advanced study as far as that goes. So you've got Hebrews 8.13. Uh, you've got 2 Peter 3.7. How about the planned obsolescence of the universe? All right. Uh, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. This planet was not designed to last forever. It will be remade. The new one will last forever. The new heavens and new earth will last forever, but not this one. This one is mortal. This one is, is uh, temporary, even as our mortal bodies. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there is no longer any... See, that's kind of fun to think about. By the way, 
that's uh, more than an oceanographical uh, comment, all right? It's more than just dealing with H2O, <laughs> okay? There's uh, spiritual dimensions applied there as well in the, uh, the sea. All right, there are certain passages that are mile markers. Quit doing that. Certain passages are mile markers, so to speak, providing vital assistance in diagramming the plan of God from Alpha to Omega. And these are passages that jump out. These are passages I'm constantly referring to, and they're powerful in my mind. This morning we had one of them, by the way, Daniel chapter 9. You know, I I don't know why more people don't pay attention to Daniel chapter 9. It's critical in in the 70 weeks of Daniel and in the Father's plan for Israel and how only 69 of them are fulfilled as of now. There's one that's yet remaining. And God is faithful. That one must be fulfilled. Uh, Ephesians 1.10, we looked at already. It's the end game objective. The end game objective. And actually, I stopped reading before we got to this, didn't I? Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. And then, notice, with a view, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That administration there is the dispensation of the fullness of times. The Greek word is oikonomia. It refers to the economy, the stewardship, the dispensation, the administration. We've got all these English terms for this concept and it's vital that we recognize this. All right? And every one of these English renderings is useful because I think it shows us a facet of what the oikonomia is all about. With a view. With a view. Do you ever take your eye off the ball? Do you ever lose sight of a long-term plan? God doesn't. You know, there's, a, there's a, quite frequently, we as finite beings, we, we, okay, I'll just preach to myself, I lose track of the, of the big picture. And I get wrapped up in little things, and I get sidetracked, and I get, you know, squirrel. You know, like a, like a dog, it's so easy to just be, to lose focus, and to, to lose that big picture. God never does. God the Father never does. With a view He never loses track of this. So when he was unfolding the plan for the angels, the plan for the Gentiles, the plan for the Jews, the plan for the church, he's never lost track of the fact there's a coming tribulation, there's a coming millennium, but he's always kept his view on the new heavens and new earth, on the administration suitable to the fullness of times. This is not the millennium. All right? Schaefer says it's the millennium. Schofield says it's the millennium. I beg to differ. All right? It is the fullness of the times. It is the summing up of all things in Christ. The millennium is a thousand years of of simmering rebellion against Jesus Christ. It's uh, feigned obedience to Jesus Christ. It's the nations gnashing their teeth and devising a plan against Jesus Christ while he who sits in the heavens laughs. It is a rod of iron. It's not a pleasant reign for Jesus Christ for that thousand years. It's uh, in many respects, it's an occupational government over a conquered territory. And, uh, and humanity will chafe. By the end of the thousand years, they will demand Satan's release and they will demand Jesus' abdication in what we call the Gog-Magog revolt. The millennium is not the summing up of all things in Christ. Notice, things in heavens and things on the earth. We have a different definition of everything here than we had in that earlier passage we saw of Philippians chapter 2. The multidimensional definition of everything here is in the heavens and on the earth. There, there's no longer... And under the earth that has any reference to anything we'll ever deal with again. Because post great white throne, every unbeliever, every fallen angel, all sin, all death, all rebellion, cast into the lake of fire, it is sealed off 
and it's over and done with. We never even think of them from that point forward. They still exist, of course. We don't preach annihilationism. They do exist. They will abide forever and ever in the lake of fire, but we no longer have vision of them or thought of them. The definition of all things here is things in the heavens and things on the earth. So here's the end game objective that the Father has never allowed himself to lose sight of. The dispensation of the fullness of times. The Father is dedicated to eternally exalting the Son. All right? Another passage, mile marker, milestone, Proverbs chapter 8. We taught this to some length just recently in our Proverbs class. Um, Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 31, portrays the hypostatic union of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here I admit, I include this here in basics, give you a paragraph on it, but to really dig into it, it's beyond the basics to do so. All right, to dig into it, it's more intermediate, it's more advanced. But the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, true humanity and undiminished deity are united forever in the person of Christ. And uh, this, this it, it, it boggles people's minds uh, if they've never been exposed to it, if they've never read about it. Um, but it's, it's remarkable how many authors have written on this through the, through the years of church history, and yet it doesn't seem to get attention. It just seems that the babe in the manger is where everyone goes when they think of the humanity of Christ and its beginning. No, the body of Christ has its beginning with a pregnant virgin, but the humanity of Christ has its beginning before the foundation of the world. And, and once you can separate those in your thinking, things get a lot easier after that. All right, Because our humanity is not dependent upon our body. Our humanity is a separate function. And, and God the Father begat Jesus Christ before his works of old. As it says in Proverbs 8.22, The Lord possessed me, or begat me, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. That's a childbearing term. He was birthed. The humanity of Jesus Christ was birthed before the universe was created. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world... See, and we have this description of it here. And if you want more on this, by the way, like I say, it's on the website. Uh, just go to the, the Proverbs material, navigate, like I showed you, navigate to the Proverbs class, to chapter 8. You'll see it right there in the, in the submenus. All right. The Father begetting the only begotten Son, the firstborn of all creation. This is an unfathomable glory. But again, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So when you take the hypostatic union and you properly identify it in eternity past, all right, when you properly identify it, you, you recognize this is the alpha moment. This is the boundary between the timeless and the time, the dimension of time, okay? Remember, time itself is a sequence of moments, from the alpha moment to the omega moment, and every moment in between in a, in a linear fashion, all right? That's time. The hypostatic union is the alpha moment. The birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ is the hypostatic moment. When the Father says, today I have begotten thee, that's the first today ever. And everything else that happens in time is after that. It's after the alpha moment. 
In fact, the boundaries of time are the, is the only dimension that we can properly use words like before and after because of that linear nature of the time dimension. So the birthing of the humanity of Christ. Proverbs chapter 8, Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. And you know, once you start to realize this, we know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which, which member of Trinity did the creation? Jesus Christ. It was God the Son that did create. We know that. We know that from John 1. We know that from Colossians 1. We know that from other places. We know the Spirit of God was brooding, but it was the Son who did the work. Okay? The, uh, the Father designed it. The Son did it. But once we digest this, man, it becomes even, even more amazing because not only was it God the Son, but it was the God-man. It was Jesus Christ in hypostatic union that created this universe. It was the God-man who created this universe. It was the God-man who fashioned Adam from the dust. You ever think about that? Not just God the Son, the God-man in hypostatic union who fashioned Adam from the dust. And once we can appreciate this, and once we start wrapping our minds around this, then there's concepts like, well, of course he's in the image of God. It's the God-man who did this, say. That's why you have your Luke genealogy that goes son of, son of, son of, all the way to the son of Adam, the son of God. I find these things beautiful. There we go again. Why does it keep doing that? All right. Colossians 1.16 demonstrates that creation encompassed both the visible and invisible realms of existence. Obviously, when you read through the day-by-day accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's no angels mentioned there at all. All right, and so we have more questions in Genesis than answers in Genesis, uh, at least on an angelic level. Um, but according to, Corinthians, according to Colossians, according to Job, according to other passages, we know about the creation of the angels. Ezekiel 28 talks about Satan's creation. Uh, no time frame or sequence is there indicated, and the Genesis 1-2 account only details the, the physical realm. And so we have diagrams and in your notebook you'll see these diagrams eternity past in the beginning which was without beginning and and what took place in the timeless eternity past and is it right to put them in this order well it's it's not a sequential dimension anyway it's a timeless existence when god is all there is is god and god that's it right the i am is the i am in eternity past and so there's eternal life fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an eternal life conference between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit where they discuss the plan, they agree to the plan, and they put it into effect with the divine decrees. Okay? That's not basics. <laughs> okay? That gets us into more advanced studies. Then the uh, dispensation of the angels, their placement and service, their rebellion and warfare, and then their judgment, including the destruction of the earth. The tohu abohu judgment that's described in Genesis 1-2, Jeremiah 4, uh, and other passages. The dispensation of Gentiles, or I like to call it the dispensation of, uh, of man. Let's see. Oh, you know what? I've got to scroll to the right, don't I, for some of these. Nope. I might be missing some of these. An outline for the creative ages. There's more than just those three. I'm, I'm missing them in my outline here. You'll have them in your notebook. 
but the dispensation of Alpha and the creative ages, the creation of the humanity of Jesus Christ, the creation of the heavens, creation of the heavenly host, the creation of the earth. There's aspects there that we want to study and we want to be familiar with. All right. By the way, Job 38 is obvious. Before the earth comes about, God gathers an audience. And, and, and to me, it's, it's sad that the Answers in Genesis people and other people, I'm not picking on one organization, but a whole lot of people never pay attention to the angels. And I think they create more problems for themselves than they solve by ignoring huge sections of Scripture. But, but Job 38 is undeniable that angels are on hand when God creates the earth. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is part of his rebuke where he says, where were you, Job, when I did all this? You weren't there. Okay, the angels were, but you weren't there. Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? And then, boy, those descriptions are interesting too. I think Job was likely uh, in the building business himself. He was the greatest of all the men of the East. And uh, in that era, that meant he was a builder. That meant that he was responsible for cities. He was responsible for any number of things. Clarence Larkin believed that, that Job built the Great Pyramid, that Job was the, the designer and architect and builder of the Great Pyramid. And if so, I, you know, I wasn't there, I don't know, but if so, it's an interesting theory, and if Clarence Larkin is correct, then this rebuke here is, is extraordinary. Because this rebuke here seems to describe a, uh, a pyramid that has plural bases, that has a stretched plumb line, that has a capstone, better rendering than cornerstone in verse 6. And so if, if Job is all proud of the, the great pyramid that he built, God says, well, you know, I built something too. It's called the earth. <laughs> but he uses a pyramid motif to rebuke Job in this passage. Anyway. Larkin thought that was noteworthy and, and felt that it gave evidence to, uh, to his theory. And who knows. Um, but the point being, when it was all done, God had an audience, and they looked at that, and they went, wow. And they started singing. So the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It is undeniable that angels were on hand to witness the creation of the earth. So when we go back to Genesis and we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we know there's more, answer, there's more questions in Genesis than answers in Genesis. There's more to it that's not detailed in those verses. And that's fine. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it. It's these other folks that, that have a problem with it. All right? They're the ones that have, to, that have a deficiency in reconciling Scripture with Scripture. I prefer to put all the evidence together and have a comprehensive understanding. Also, Isaiah 45, 18 demonstrates the earth was not created tohu. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it a tohu, a waste place. He formed it to be inhabited. The earth was not originally created tohu. So how does it end up tohu wabohu in Genesis 1, 2? The earth was tohu and, wo- and was tohu wabohu, formless and void in Genesis 1-2. Well, how did that happen? Because this verse says it wasn't created that way. Jeremiah 4 tells us why, because of the warfare and the rebellion and the angelic fall. 
That's what laid, laid that's what brought down the cities, and that's what laid the earth, tohu wabohu. We saw that a while back in Jeremiah chapter 4. All right. And you see, we're touching on some deeper stuff, but we can still keep it surface. We can still keep it basic. Brand new believer just saved this morning can have a, a frame of reference for in the beginning, can have a frame of reference for angels before men. Obviously, when the serpent shows up in Genesis 3, he's already a fallen creature. He's already a liar, a deceiver, a snake. Okay, Something had to have happened. And when they get kicked out of the garden at the end of chapter 3, there's a cherub that's posted there with a flaming sword. And, and if all you know is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're left scratching your head saying, what's a cherub? <laughs> okay? Because that's the first use of cherub, and it's not in day one through six. It's not anywhere. Until, boom, there's a cherub there with a sword. There's more answers, or there's more questions than answers in, in Genesis. These are milestones. And these, these are the big pictures. These passages, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, these passages, Proverbs chapter 8, Isaiah 45, Job 38, all right? You realize we're commanded to study to show ourselves approved, and these are the conclusions we come to as we compare Scripture to Scripture. We want the full, complete understanding. So the earth was not created a waste place. Jeremiah 4, 23-26 describes the rebellion and divine judgment that caused the formless and void condition, the tohu-wabohu condition. In fact, it's the only place where tohu-wabohu, that phrase, appears beyond Genesis 1-2. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, they don't supply any time markers, but they provide additional context for the fall of Satan. I like to call him Halel ben Shachar, because that's his name in Isaiah 14. In the Latin Vulgate, he's called Lucifer. Okay, And nowadays, Lucifer is a TV show. And it seems like uh, the, the networks have decided, hey, let's make an evening TV show about Lucifer, and we'll make an anti-hero out of the devil kind of a thing. Well, okay, Lucifer is a Vulgate Latin translation for light bearer. For, and that's, you know, son of the morning, the, the title that's there in uh, Isaiah 14. I just prefer to keep it in the Hebrew title of Hillel ben Shachar, Satan and his angels. Again, I think we saw, oh, there's more of the diagrams. How'd they end up there? All right. I'm not going to go into those. If you want more on those, we've got an angelology series on the website, part of the 2 Corinthians series. Uh, Hebrews 1.14, 1 Corinthians 6.3, all of these delineate the exalted place that man has over the angels in God's eternal plan. You know, and that, that boggles my mind too. Because I read my Bible, man, these angels are powerful. Man, angels can fly. Angels can, you know, massacre troops. Angels can can bring down city walls. I mean, what you know, angels can do some pretty amazing things. You know, I read comic books as a kid, and, and you know, I, I really like superheroes and things, but angels, oh my goodness, they, they were better than superheroes. Look what they can do. And yet, what is man? This dust creature. What is the son of man? And, and this is part of, I think, Satan's rebellion and Satan's fall was the idea that these majestic, glorious beings of light were going to be subjected to these to these dust creatures these cockroaches these i mean seriously uh, Hillel ben shahar couldn't imagine such a thing 
And yet, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Angelity came first, but they will serve humanity. And that's the, that's the design and that's the plan. Because it was the God-man that created the angels. And it was the God-man that formed Adam. And it's man in the image of God, not angels. So, uh, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You know, and I don't know, is it a Catholic thing and some of the medieval, I mean, the idea that when, whoa, when we die, we become angels? How sad is that? What a demotion. I'm not going to become an angel when I die. Angels are going to be serving me in the resurrection. I'm, I'm part of the bride of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ. Angels are ministering servants. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? Okay. He didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He didn't subject that to angels. He subjects that to Jesus Christ and us in Christ. Yeah, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You know, and if you ever think, you want to do some more advanced studies on this, study the fall of Satan. Study his five I will. Study his self-promotion, his arrogance. And you'll find patterns there that underlie all of our rebellion too, <laughs> all of our sin. But in all of his arrogance, it was always about, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. It was all about how great he was. I will be like the Most High God is how it ends. And he's, he's not content with his level. He wants to ascend and take God's place. And so what does God do? God descends, not only to Satan's level, but he's made for a while lower than the angels. Isn't that a beautiful thing? With God, angels, man in that hierarchy, angels are higher than man presently, but lower than God. Satan wanted to exalt himself above to God's level. So what does God do? He comes down, not to angelic level, he comes even lower. He's found in the likeness of man. He's born of a virgin. He takes on the, the, the body of, of dust. What a glory. You know, we're going to judge the angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? The role of the church, the role of the bride of Christ, our role in Christ as all judgments given to Him, but we're in Him, so we have a, a judgment capacity as a part of that, and we will judge angels. We do have an exalted place. All right. Unlike the angels, man was created in the image of God. Unlike the angels, man was created male and female with procreative privilege. Ever think about that? There's no girl angels in the Bible. With one possible exception, people like to point out to me. Um, but that's a vision. That's an apocalyptic vision with respect to a stork. And, uh, and, and I wouldn't want to use that text to try to prove female angels when no other passage proves or demonstrates There's, there are no girl angels. All right. Man was created male and female with procreative privilege. God's the creator, but we procreate. And we're, we're delighted to do so. In, in all of the blessings of a father and a son, we get to uh, picture that. All right, here's some more of these. You know what? I remember why. You know why these are all out of order? I think if you open up, do you have a notebook with you tonight? I think if you open up the notebook, there's a spread, and are these all spread across the bottom? That's it. Okay. All these diagrams are spread across a two-page spread across the bottom. All right. The, the dispensation of man, the age of innocence, age of conscience, age of human government, 
And these, by the way, these are useful. I don't mind this. The very first dispensational chart I ever memorized came out of a Schofield Study Bible and, and uh, Pastor Theme, who had his diagram of, of uh, you know, God, the universe, angels, man. I remember Operation Guam. Do you remember that? Uh, God, the universe, angels, and man. And then the unfolding dispensations of Gentiles, Jews, church, and Christ. That's how Pastor Theme developed it uh, with, the, with the church followed by the millennium. Good diagrams, good uh, schematics just to keep the things in perspective. All right. You know what? I think this might be a good place to stop, actually. This is, we're right on a hinge. I want to talk about the Gentiles. I want to talk about the Jews. Um, and then I want to talk about the church, which is neither Jew nor Gentile, uh, or both Jew and Gentile, okay? Neither or, both and. Uh, the, the body of Christ is comprised in our stewardship of uh, born-again individuals. So we're, I'm going to go ahead and stop here. I'm like five minutes early, but it's a good stopping place. Any questions? Any, any thoughts on all of this? All right, let's get a microphone here. Pardon my ignorance in these things, but a um, quick question is about Proverbs 8, um, where the context is about wisdom and how it was connected to a Christological perspective and Christ mm-hmm. being involved in all of that. Because how, uh, how did you draw the conclusion that it was t- the passage was about Christ? Is the right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times it's looked at as being wisdom personified or an attribute of God and God's wisdom in that sense. But when you consider how John chapter one refers to God the Son as the as the Logos, as the Word of God. And then the wisdom of God in connection with, uh, from Proverbs 8 in connection with the Logos of God in, in John chapter 1. I, I think it's a, it's a marvelous connection. But then you have all those childbearing terms. You have the begetting. You have the birthing. You have the father and son tandem. You have the, uh, the joy and the delight. I didn't get down to verse 30. Um, I was beside him as a master workman. Like in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. I was beside Him as a master workman. I was daily His delight, playing or rejoicing always before Him, playing or rejoicing in the world His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. And so the imagery here is a father and a son, and the son that's playing, and the father who's delighted to watch the son playing or rejoicing. And just as little babies will be playing with building blocks, here's Jesus playing with the earth, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a beautiful metaphor in in this respect. And so, um, yes, there and and like I said, we taught this not long ago in the Proverbs class, and and I think we taught it in about ten hours. We taught it in 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 several several classes that you'll find on the website there. And was there another question? Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. And I find folks, when they think through it and they look at the verses and they see it, things start to correlate, things start to come together. And it, it's just, it's kind of a, a newsflash in so many ways because we, we just grow up thinking, you know, uh, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, you know, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. We, we just think that his humanity must have begun with a pregnant virgin in, 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 in Bethlehem. But, but, you know, Hebrews says, a body thou hast prepared for me. And it's remarkable because this is, his humanity is independent of his body. See, 
And that's uh, it's a beautiful concept there, too. All right, well, I'm going to close in prayer, and then uh, we'll pick up right here with uh, the Gentile dispensation next, uh, next Sunday night. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for these students and the blessing that we have, Father, in this basics class. It is a, a, a joy and a delight, Father, to consider your plan and to realize that we are a part of that plan. Here we are in the bride of Christ. Who is adequate for such things? But I thank you, Father, that our adequacy comes from you. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.